Welcome to episode 63 of the Minimalist Vegan Podcast. Hello, my name is Michael and I'm joined by my beautiful wife, Marsha. Hello. And in this conversation, we're following up from last episode, part two of the ethics of beekeeping as we do a deeper dive into pollination and how that plays into culture, how that plays into exploitation and uh, what are some options and some takeaways that we can all try our best uh, to be as conscious and as compassionate as possible. Um, but before we get into the topic, any any updates around the grounds from you? Well, today I just shared a delicious tiramisu recipe. Oh, yes, you did. <laughs> that was fun you've been ref- it. You've been working on that for, for a while. For a few years, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was on the website before, but I just felt like it could be better. So I brought it back up and yeah. I'm really happy with how it's tasting and looking and... Yeah, it's delicious. I hope you guys give it a try. Yeah, yeah. you got to make gluten it... gluten-free as well, but yeah. it doesn't have to be. So, yeah. for all of you gluten-free people out there, this one's for you. Yeah. Good call. Okay, well, well, we'll link it up in the show notes, which will be at theminimalistvegan.com slash 063. But I think let's just dive in. Let's, yeah, uh, let's get started. Yeah, I'm keen. So, Michael mentioned we're going to be talking about pollination and crops and migratory beekeeping and all of that but before we get started did you want like we talked about it in the previous episode but do you want to just remind everyone who either hasn't listened or refresh them on what uh, pollination actually is I, I think yeah uh, that's a really good point you made I mean the previous episode we really discussed the ethics of beekeeping from the perspective of primarily honey and a little bit of beeswax and um, there's so many elements to these amazing little creatures and what they do. And and one of those things is pollination. But to talk about pollination is, you know, as we mentioned previously, it's, a, it's basically how flowers mate and reproduce. Flowers don't have the ability to necessarily transfer their pollen from a male plant to a female plant unless they can self-pollinate through the wind. Um, but they're largely dependent on natural pollinators to do that. So in the instance of a honeybee, a honeybee goes and collects nectar from the flower itself. Um, and in the process of doing that, the pollen gets caught in its coat. And when they're, they're buzzing around collecting nectar and uh, from flower to flower, they're shaking the pollen off their coat onto the next plant. And that's so it just happens organically. Happens it's not organically. like something that they go, okay, now I need to shake off the pollen. Yeah. So that There's the no flower, exchange of, uh, it's not, it's not like, like doing a deal know. with money yeah. or something with human <laughs> beings. It's like, okay, I got the nectar. You got the pollen? You got the pollen? Okay, cool. <laughs> I won't let you <laughs> until you have. That's right. No, no, it's, it's, it all happens organically. And this is um, a little bit different for other pollinators. I, I'm not entirely sure how they transfer pollen, but I imagine it's a, in a similar manner. You know, I'm talking about bats or hummingbirds or flies you know we mentioned in a previous episode the european honeybee is one of twenty thousand species so there's um a lot of nomadic bee species that trailblaze through different plants and they have their own way of collecting nectar and transferring pollen as well so um they've all got their different ways of doing it but that's in effect what pollination is so once the pollen is transferred from one plant to another gives them a chance to reproduce and there you go even figs has got a really interesting pollination process um, that's dependent on a very specific wasp. It's the only, <laughs> this is the only living organism that can actually help transfer pollen for a fig crop. And that's because figs are actually inverted flowers. So without this wasps going inside, you wouldn't be able to, like, figs wouldn't exist. Yes. 
and and the wasps don't know if a fig is male or female. It's kind of just like uh, rolling the dice every time they go in. But mm. the understanding is, unfortunately, for the wasp, they go in and the expectation is that they don't come back out. They actually die inside the fig. Um, it's a really fascinating sort of process and we'll make sure to link up to some interesting videos that we're watching around fig pollination just because we wanted to. But it just shows another example of, what's the word you used before we started recording? Mutualism. Mutualism, right? So this, this beautiful natural exchange between different organisms, but in this case between a pollinator and a plant. So the reasons are just to like when you're referring to, for instance, figs that you were just talking sure. about and the wasp goes inside, the reason it can't leave is because its wings are clipped. Oh, yeah. So uh, it can't fly back out. But the reason it goes in there is so that it has somewhere to lay its eggs. So that's why it does that. And, yeah, it's it's really fascinating. Yeah. But, yeah. Just so you know, the fig does, the wasp does become part of the fig. Yeah, so and, you're not you're not eating you, yeah, a dead wasp. You're not yeah, exactly. It absorbs right. it. It yeah. absorbs it. And, and not every fig is actually needing to be pollinated yes. this way today, especially now that um, you know, different hybrids have been created and all of that. It's yes. not necessary for that to process. And and I'd say probably most of the figs that you find in the supermarket are not wasp pollinated. So keep that in mind as well when you're eating them. Good to know. Yeah. So, speaking of pollination and some of them being dependent on bees, for instance, what are some of the crops that need or that are most dependent on these bees for pollination? Yeah, so the big ones are almonds and avocados, um, but it also expands to include crops like apples, blueberries, cranberries, melons, broccoli, cherries, and pumpkins. So, so the majority of them need about 90% dependency on honeybees for pollination. But the big, the big ones is, is, is almonds and and avocados to a lesser extent. And that's where a lot of the questions come up from an ethical standpoint. And I actually wrote an article about avocados specifically because um, for some reason that's a particular crop a lot of people ask a lot of questions about. It's probably because we're quite um, uh, culturally, we're quite excited about the health benefits of avocados and tend to love enjoying it on our toast and it's readily available. It's quite hip, so I can understand that. But it also started with a QI episode. Yes, it did. Yeah. So that QI episode... It's Ed, quite a few years yeah, ago. Ed, yeah, 2018 or 2019, I can't remember. And uh, yeah, one of the questions was around what food would be off the table for strict, pure vegans or okay. some sort of like wording like that. Yeah. And um, there were some plant crops on there. And I think avocado was on the list. And, you know, a lot of the contestants got the question wrong, which sparked the conversation about, well, actually, because um, of the way these flowers are dependent on migratory bees, which we're going to talk about a bit later, and the exploitation in that industry, they aren't strictly vegan. So you, you, you better stay away from those crops if you're to be a pure vegan. So A purist. <laughs> yeah, so th- that's where a lot of this um, momentum started to pick up steam. And, and then, it, of course, it sparked a lot of debate, uh, which is still going on to today. And so that's why I wrote the article around avocados and the avocado industry. And then learning about avocados and the way they pollinate is one one flower will literally open up as a female one time, close overnight or over a couple hours and open up again as a male flower. So as you can imagine, it's going to make it a lot more difficult to pollinate 
flowers which open and close at different sex each time. So to get them to pollinate efficiently, what a lot of farmers will do is they'll grow two trees next to each other and hope that the males and females open and close around the same time. Both trees are opening up as females at the same time and closing and opening up as males or... yeah. That's right. So when that the window of opportunity is there, that's why they get in the likes of a, a honeybee to come in and do that work and pollinate effectively as well. So that's just an example, and I'm pretty sure it's the same for almond trees, okay. um, is they have a, a, a another delicate pollination process, which is dependent on the service of European honeybees. Um, and even some researchers are, are doing some work in New Zealand because you're able to grow avocados there. They're one of the regular importers to Australia for avocados avocados and because of the the wet and cold conditions in New Zealand the flowers tend to open later in the day because you know they're relying on the heat to warm up during the day so they open and close overnight so they're experimenting with pollinators that operate at night time like bats and moths and things like that as well so um yeah it's a it's a pretty fascinating operation actually yeah, that um, is interesting. to to get some of these crops available to us so when you're talking about pollination is it generally from like insects and bees and bats and whatever that are in that area or do they bring them in sometimes as well so yeah i mean in a, in a natural world crops are going to be dependent on whatever pollinators are going to be organically in the area Right. However, with industrialized farming, we as humans have become really efficient at mass producing food. And one of those methods is through monoculture. And that's basically growing one type of crop or one type of animal um, at a massive scale. So you can improve the efficiencies by focusing on that one type of food. And in doing this, as we explained in the previous episode, it kills diversity in the area. And because it's done at such a large scale and such a vast radius and space, it is common practice for a lot of these crop farmers to, these, these monocrop farmers to hire beekeepers to bring over their hives on trucks to pollinate these crops. And this is known as a pollination rental. And migratory beekeepers will charge up to $200 US dollars per hive. And some of these keepers have tens of thousands of hives. Like this is their core business. And, and honey and beeswax and all those other things we talked about are just side incomes. They're not even right. a mainstream of income here. So that's where we get into the ethics of the whole situation is because... For example, each February, 31 billion honeybees are trucked into central California to pollinate hundreds and billions of almond flowers. So, you know, the almond crops, which we've so famously heard about in California, and for good reason, these guys are responsible for about 80% of the almonds exported across the whole world. So it's very significant. But this is not a unique example to just the United States. Even here in Australia, a company called Goldfields Honey moves 5,000 hives to almond plantations on the Murray River each year. 
So it's a common practice that happens in Australia and across the world as well. Yeah, and I mean, let's dive just a little bit deeper because I know that there is more than just the fact that they're being shipped around. And like, so what happens in that process? So think of thousands of hives in boxes being put onto trucks, yeah, stacked, yeah. like packed and, and stacked neatly and covered over the top. Like they, they put this huge sheet over the top. Of plastic. Yeah, like this, yeah. like they wrap it around. And then they, they travel thousands of kilometres or miles across country and sometimes, you know, depending on state laws, can take a little bit of time to get through customs even for inspections, just to see the health of the hives, if there's any infections, if there's anything that could cause any harm, like um, disease, any diseases, diseases or anything like that as well. State. And then meanwhile, depending on the conditions, if it's in sort of a warmer climate, for example, when you stop the truck, a lot of these bees want to get out of their hives. So, I mean, the first issue is you've got thousands of hives next to each other on the truck, which is... Yeah. Uh, not ideal in the first place. They're they're traveling long kilometers, bouncing around in a box, mm. um, covered in plastic. Mm. And then when they stop in warmer climates, what they're naturally wanting to do is go collect nectar for their hive. So, you know, it's warm. So it's okay. That signals to them. All right, it's time to go get to work. Yeah. And um, meanwhile when things are getting checked off at customs, there's a risk that if they stay too long, the bees won't return to the colony. And as Marsha mentioned in a previous episode, if generally if a honeybee doesn't return to a colony within 24 hours, they're, they're likely to die. So um, there's a lot of things going on in that situation. But if all goes well, gets ticked off at customs. Like they uh, or, do the process relatively quickly. Oh, they quickly. do the process relatively quickly. Bees are in good health. The journey continues and then they get to their destination, their road trip, whatever crop they're pollinating. Um, they, you know, they take out the hives and they let the bees go out and pollinate. And um, that once they do their pollination and they literally transform these crops, like they, you know, it could be sparse and like nothing's happening. And then within a couple of days, even it's completely transformed and, and blossomed. Um, so it's pretty remarkable. Bees go back in the hives, back in the trucks, and they continue their journey. And they do this all year round. And I'm sure that, like, not every single bee returns back to the hive. It's not like they go, okay, last one's just landed in its hive. Let's pack them up and go. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm sure during that process as well, they might leave some behind, which, again, they've lost their hive. So yes. they m- most likely will die as well. Yeah. Uh, there's so many variables, right? And and a lot of these beekeepers factor that in. Like you would with any type of farming, right? We're talking about livestock here. You know, you you, you account for losses. You account for deaths. And uh, you, you budget that into your financials. And that's what a lot of these beekeepers have to do. Um, often migratory beekeepers will lose anywhere between 30 and 70% of their bees, Right, so they've developed these processes to to split the hives at the end of season and and breed them for the next season, and to the point where sometimes they can even end up with more hives than they initially had through the splitting process. But you know, this is a livestock production. This is um this is a big business. Mm. And you know, we I don't know if we've mentioned, but just the stress that the bees have to go through and working so much change in weather change in destination and 
transportation and all of that, their immune systems are probably getting weaker and weaker. Yeah. And depending on what the crops are sprayed with as well, I'm sure they've mitigated a lot of the the pesticides that they use that were killing off the bees, which we mentioned in the last episode, which is the colony collapse disorder, CD, which was discovered back in 2006. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's generally fixed now, but I, it was interesting because it not only until the other day did it click to me that that's why a lot of the almonds that you see, especially in the bulk stores, say insecticide free or pesticide free because you know that they can't spray those crops. It's not because it's like it's a health benefit to you, obviously, as well, because you're not consuming a, a sprayed crop. But it's because of the bees that they're not spraying mm. them anymore with these particular harmful chemicals because they were dying. Yeah. So it's just interesting to see all of these things connecting and how it's making sense to me. Yeah, it is. It's, it's I don't know, to me it's just a very confronting industry. Like you've got this whole thing about honey sort of that sits on the top, gets to mainstream media and it's something that we've all come to know and love. And But then underneath this, you've got this massive business that's going on um, around pollination and it look I, I should also say i mean it's it seems pretty dire but at the same time it's you know there's variables in everything like one trip could go really well one trip could go really bad but you know some farmers or, or beekeepers would argue that the bees are really happy because of the abundance of nectar they're able to collect mm. by going to these massive fields of monocrops so you know we know so little about this industry and and this and this business that there really isn't much traceability at the point of purchase for us as consumers to know just you know how these crops got to our plates and well, um, unless you do your own research. yeah unless you yeah. do your own digging so uh, I just think it's important to to understand that and, and in the blog post we linked to a video where we embedded a video in the post that the ABC News did with a migratory beekeeper in the United States which is a real eye opener to uh, the industry and some of the things that I've mentioned before about crossing borders and that whole process. Mm. Um, And staying on the topic of monocrops, so what what do you think is actually like, because at the end of the day, like the only reason that bigger crops, monocrops exist is because there's this argument of, well, we need to feed the world. Yep. So if we're not doing monocrops, what are the other better solutions that, would obviously then mitigate the need or like reduce the need for migratory beekeeping to exist. Yeah, so another example. Okay, so to isolate the problem here. So if you've got these, I mean, just unthinkable how big these almond orchards are. Mm. Like Like they just go on and on and on. Like drone footage can't capture this stuff. Yeah. It's mind-blowing. So the issue is... You've got these almond orchards, but you've got nothing else, no other plantations around it. Yeah. And it's hot. Like, it's really hot in central California. So, the idea is, like, if you were to try and bring in local bees or leave the bees there, because of the lack of plantation around, they're going to, they're likely to die. Mm. Right? Or just migrate somewhere else. Or migrate somewhere else. So, the, the, the other way to approach this is through polyculture. Mm. And as the name suggests, 
Uh, so you've got monoculture, which is one crop, one animal, or polyculture, which is integrating different types of crops and different types of animals to, to, to work together. And there is a way forward, and many farmers practice this, that they have multiple types of plants on their farms um, that attract natural pollinators. Mm. Um, there's even ideas of bringing in a meadow, like a meadow just purely dedicated to bringing in lots of pollinators um, all year round to attract them in. And then obviously they'll they'll go on to um, pollinate some of the, the fruits as well, or fruits and vegetables that we, we come to eat and love. So there is a way forward that you can do that. But polyculture, if you think about it, is by design creating diversity. Because if you look at humans, animals, insects, and the natural environment in our most organic form is wild it's all integrated it's all together mm. and and nature works in a way where it's already figured all of this out yeah and we're codependent on each other and it just works but we've industrialized it to a point where we've moved so far away from that that we're now having to meet scale with scale right so so we create a a system for growth then we need another system to support that growth hence this migratory beekeeping but if we were to redesign or rethink what that might look like from a collaborative standpoint, from bringing in different diverse plants, we can still do it, do it at a massive scale, but we might have a better chance of, we will have a, uh, a chance of attracting more natural pollinators and, and prevent the need of, you know, migrating bees. Yeah, that's a good point. I think we just have to start thinking, you know, well, that's all well and good for you to say, but like, is that realistic? And I think there's more than enough food on this planet to sustain everyone. And even if more people, and I think a lot of people since COVID have decided to move to property to be able to self, you know, sufficiently Mm. grow what they eat and have to depend on supermarkets and other people for food. And I think that's a really smart, organic way of doing it. I mean, obviously, it's not going to happen for everyone, especially, you know, in larger cities where you've got apartment blocks and townhouses and yeah. all that. Or it's you, not you, possible Or you don't live everyone. in a climate that, it, you know, yeah. accommodates that. Exactly. So there is, but I think that there's still a lot of room for improvement in areas where if you do have the opportunity, try and take... I think that if you can grow your own food, that's the best way to empower yourself Mm. and you learn so much from it and you, you know, you become closer to nature and humans are part of nature. So I think it just, I don't know, it just really grounds you in so many ways and makes you appreciate what you eat every day. And if you have children educating them on that, I think we're kind of getting lost in this whole world of technology and, you know, like it's, I think that in many ways bringing things back to nature is really important. So monocrops don't have to be such a big player in all of this. And then maybe even, you know, if you have the choice, don't use plants that are grown in monocrops. Yeah, and this is... find alternatives. And I think this is this brings up the point of the the ethics, right? The vegan argument, right? Because, I mean, the reason why we're talking about this in the first place is because of, you know, that show from a couple of years ago and the ongoing conversations that vegans and non-vegans are having about the ethics of honey, really. That's where it stems from. It's like, so okay, so put it this way. Vegans don't eat honey because it's not for them, right? So fundamentally, the honey is not for 
it's for the bees, not for humans, and it's unnecessary to take the honey. Therefore, that's why they 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 don't do it. From an the ethical bees s- don't make the honey in mind of it being taken away from them. They make it for themselves, for insulation and for food. Yes. So that's fundamentally where vegans sit. So then a non-vegan would say, "Well, that's all well and good, but are you prepared to stop eating?" your avocado and toast and your almond milk because of how... The dependency. Yeah, mm. but it's basically a livestock business on the back end of this that's um, that's exploiting bees, Yeah, right? And they're both very, very valid arguments. And I think when it comes down to it, uh, I should also say, and then a vegan would then typically respond by saying, well, you know, veganism is not about being perfect. It's about doing the best that you practically can to reduce suffering exploitation towards animals. It's not about doing everything. It's about doing something. Yeah. So, and then back and forth we go. Yeah. All really, really valid points. Um, And I think when it comes down to it, we shouldn't be afraid to put everything under the microscope, right? At the same time, we don't want to cause ourselves too much stress. (laughs) But I think it's worth assessing all these situations because, you know, that's why I love the work that we get to do. Because mm. we get to call ourselves out. Like, we, we, you know, it's for many years I've blindly said just no to honey, no to, you know, anything that comes from a bee just because I just felt like it wasn't, it wasn't aligned with a vegan ethos. I didn't need to take it from the bees, leave it for the bees, etc. Um, but, you know, when people challenge you around this crop issue and pollination, I think it's important to not get defensive but actually take a step back and ask yourself, well, what is happening? Yeah. You know, and it is heartbreaking. It seriously is heartbreaking, this migratory beekeeping at the scale that is happening. Um, and, you know, we shine a lot in the US, but it's happening all over the place as a way to efficiently grow crops. And I think it's worth sitting in that. I think it's worth acknowledging that it's happening. Mm. And and rather than so sort of falling back on a definition of veganism, I think it's important for us to maybe ask some different questions, see if yeah. we can change our behavior. But... Let's go there, though. Let's talk about this vegan issue because when you think about it, is anything really vegan? Like, is anything we consume really vegan? Our very existence causes some level of indirect harm to another animal, right? I'm not keeping count, but I've, I've probably ran over or stepped on many insects, right? I've Before I was vegan, I was driving, backing out the car of the driveway of the townhouse we used to live in, and I ran over a blue tongue lizard. And I felt horrible. Like I ran over the side of it. It was kind of still alive. And it was, it was a horrible, horrible situation. I felt terrible. But it was a sincere accident. And if anybody has hit a deer or a kangaroo or whatever wildlife is in your area, um, you know that feeling. It's absolutely devastating. The, the amount of times I've seen like a little caterpillar in my, my broccoli at mm-hmm. times, you know, like... And, you know, I'm washing it. I'm washing a broccoli before and I see it, you know, but then I think about, wow, I must have eaten my fair share of caterpillars just through this broccoli. Mm. You know, in some, in some when countries... When you eat organic, when you don't eat organic, then oh, right. it's all... Yeah, but then that's other all, issues, right? Yeah. Um, I remember when we were, when we were setting up the veggie patch here in the garden bed and we we're going to the, um, the hardware store to go get soil. Mm. And do you remember that what we had to go, like... The, the process and trying to find even soil yeah. that like 90% of the soil 
was made using blood and animal parts and animal matter and all of this feathers. stuff, feathers and all this stuff in the soil. So, like you know, soil is even in question. There's some there's some countries that test the quality of the drinking water, like the tap water, through different types of uh, fish species to see if there's any any um, poisons or harmful chemicals in them. So it's like, are we going to stop drinking, eating, sleeping, <laughs> walking outside? You know, because we're trying to achieve something that is purely in its purest sense is is unattainable but that's actually not what veganism is you know veganism is doing everything you practically can to omit or avoid the exploitation the harm towards other sentient beings and in and, and for us that includes humans as well as animals right it's doing the best that you can and not to say that you know we can hide by this definition to justify our actions and you know for example in saying that well i'm, I'm gonna eat lamb shank tonight um, because i'm doing the best that i can it's not necessarily what this is about i think i think it, it's about a direct impact and indirect impact and even with the indirect impact i think it's important for us to try and do the best that we possibly can that is feasible to do so but there are things that we can do Ways that we can vote with our do- dollar, vote with our time, that is directly, unquestionably exploiting animals, mm-hmm. right? And that's why I feel honey falls into that category. Yeah. Because it's directly stealing a resource from bees. Whilst pollination, it's something that happens indirectly. Some farms do it well naturally some farms use migratory practices you know we're going to get into some of the practical solutions in a, in, in a minute but i feel like they're two different intents two different processes and you know and the same thing goes for you know saying you know, consume milk you're directly supporting unquestionably supporting an industry that envoys exploitation right so i know it gets tricky it gets and that's why we we love sitting in the gray areas of veganism because it's like you know we get (laughs) we go back and forth in terms of where do we draw the line right and ultimately you got to do what you think is is right but i do think it's worth acknowledging still even the more indirect things right um you know how we can mitigate that if i see an insect on the path i try to avoid it Mm. do you know what i mean Mm. I don't maliciously go and step on the insect and be like, yeah, die, you know, like for yeah. the sake of it, right? So it's like if I was all of a sudden the world was ending and the only resource was to um, kill an animal and eat it, 100% I'll do it. We're talking about survival. Yeah. But I, I'm not in a situation where I need to kill an animal to eat it. So I'm not going to do it, right? Yeah. So I think there's a level of practicality here that we need to exercise in our compassion and how far we take it. But, you know, if we take veganism all the way up, which is not what the vegan definition is, but if we're just trying to eliminate any harm at all costs, it's not possible. It's just not possible. Um, So anyway, rant over. No, and I think that, you know, and I think the reason that these things are coming up is because veganism is becoming more and more popular as the day goes on. So I think also non-vegans try and punch holes in the vegan movement just to justify their own actions and to feel better about what they are not doing. So I just find that quite interesting that yep. back in, you know, even 10 years ago, a lot of these things weren't even questions because 
no one was really talking about it that much. So. Yeah, but I think, but I also think the fact that uh, you know veganism has been challenged, and and the fact that we are learning more about migratory beekeeping is a positive thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah, definitely. It's overwhelming, yeah. but it's a positive thing to talk about to to try and make better better decisions. Yeah, because knowledge is power. At the end of the day, the yeah. more you know, the better educated decisions you can make. Yep. So as you mentioned earlier about all the different options that you want to outline. Do you want to talk about that now? Yeah, absolutely. So tell us all of the different options that I guess, let's take an avocado as an example yep. so that you can talk about it in that context. Yeah, and I think a good good example is to use our own personal experience in this yeah. because, um, you know, we, we have been, you know, this is what happens. You create the content and then it impacts you and then you have to go do the work yourself. And, mm. and you know, we... we Eat a lot of avocados. We do. We love avocados in this house. But we we wanted to look at the supply chain of where we're getting these avocados from. So the the best option, and there's five options, but the best option is always going to be to grow your own. If, for example, you can grow your own avocado tree, which takes a long time, 10, 20 years to... Uh, <laughs> For you to get anything To get back. anything. Um, but, well, you not know. get anything. See, this is the exploitative yeah. nature of... <laughs> and uh, it's certainly possible, you know, if you're in a... You, you know you're in a long, long-term long situation in a property. There's certainly ways to grow avocado. You can even grow it from seed if you... But, you know, the chances of that succeeding is going to be very difficult. So, um, you want to grow a uh, an avocado, like a, a fruit tree that's a bit more established. So, there's that option. Uh, which also includes in that option in that in that tier, if you like, if if you know anybody else, like any friends, family, neighbors that have the crop that you want to consume, and and see if you can either pay them, they can give it to you, you can exchange it, uh, exchange with them, because if if it's going to be an avocado that's grown in your neighborhood or your area, I'm a hundred percent sure that your neighbours are not going to be renting migratory bees. Unless, <laughs> unless you're a farmer and your neighbour's an avocado farmer. <laughs> That's true. Apologies to, to the farmers, yes. But um, it is unlikely in a suburban sense... Yeah. Um, that that's going to be the situation. So yeah. you're going to have a lot of natural pollinators. So you're going to have a good peace of mind there. That's always going to be your best option mm. is is your own backyard. Yeah. So that's a very slim percentage of the population. Very, I don't know. Very slim. I don't know anyone with an almond tree or avocado tree. Yeah. So yeah. let's get on to the next best <laughs> option. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. So the next best, best option is going to be uh, supporting your local farmers. And this is primarily going to be in uh, like a farmer's market if you have access to that in your area. And because normally your your local farmers, are, in, in my experience anyway, in our experience, are normally they're like hobbyist farms or they're farms that include multiple different types of plant species and is polyculture by default, really. So, but even then, you want to make sure you 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 ask the farmer, and that's a beautiful thing about farmers markets is that generally you get to build a relationship with the farmer directly, yeah. And you get to ask these questions, and they're quite proud about their practices, and it gives you a real peace of mind um, to know if there's any pollination rentals happening. And in you the back can end. make a decision right then and there. You don't have to make phone calls or yep. guess or assume. You yes. know. You get you get it to make a decision. You know, like I've gone to farmers markets and I've asked, do they spray? And they say yes, and I go, okay, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. You know, and so I move on to another stall that doesn't. Yeah, so. Marsha's yeah, she's really good at asking questions and building relationships with the local farmers. I'd also group into that category food co-ops. Um, yeah. Again, if you're fortunate to have 
a co-op in your area uh, where the community is bringing in their produce to, to the co-op for everybody to buy. And uh, I think that's a great model. And again, you you know, because people are bringing in this produce from their hobbyist backyards and, and crops and things, you can be fairly certain that there's no... I mean, not all food co-ops, though, have just people bringing in the produce they also do buy it in right but again it's most likely going to be as local as possible and seasonal as possible so you're not going to get avocados all year round yeah and i think that's worth mentioning for these first two options is whether it's backyard or local farmers is that this requires an adjustment of our own expectations behavior to not expect to maybe eat all of our favorite food uh plants all year round Mm. You know, these are seasonal fruits and vegetables and nuts that, you know, if we're eating in a line to nature, it's it's by the season. So that's something that Marsha and I have reflected on as well is our, our demand for things in uh, all the time. Although you've you've taught me and you've held us accountable to you buy seasonally and you've been doing so for many, many years. But um, avocados is probably one of those ones that we're a bit more relaxed on. And um and I think that's something to avocados and bananas. Yeah, and bananas. Yeah, yeah, is is something to maybe shift. All of us probably need to reflect on that. Mm. I guess in in Australia we do have. I mean, in the US as well, you have certain tropical states, environments. Yeah. You know, you've got better growing areas, so you know a lot of the stuff that is more suited for warmer weather, or it's you know, for instance, now in the middle of winter we're getting certain more tropical plants or things that thrive in the summer, spring, summer months mm. up from, you know, northern Queensland sort of area, which is yes. up north because we're the southernest state yes. in Australia on an island called Tasmania. So, um, you know, we're not going to be growing avocados this time of year, but no. we're managing to get them quite cheap organically at the yes. moment. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So, what's the what's the next option here that you can have so the next tier is to support like um i call this like your health food store your bulk food store your your grocer your natural grocer uh, or 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 something of that like so it's it's not a big supermarket it's normally a, a smaller business that tries to source um, organic or natural produce and plants in general. We have one locally here in our city and we've had one in our previous city. Again, if you're fortunate to have them available in your area, they're going to be your next best option. But it depends on what their model is in terms of how they source their products, yeah. right? Because you, this is where you're going to have to start doing a bit of groundwork yourself because they could be sourcing ingredients from all over the place. Even though they are generally more natural, chemical-free, organic, we still don't know where they're coming from and what scale these these um, plants yeah. are being grown. So, so share some yeah. of the insight that you've had from... Yeah, so our, our, our local grocer that we shop up all, all the time, organic grocer, uh, we were looking at avocados um, uh, about a week ago. And uh, we looked at the label and we thought, okay, let's take this one home. You know, most avocados will have like a little sticker of origin on them. That's right. Yeah. So Google Googled the, the farm. Um, they had a website and a phone number, called, called them up, spoke with a bloke called Marcus. I don't know if he's the farmer. He sounded like he was the farmer. And uh, I just played dumb. I just said, look, I'm just <laughs> a, a new vegan I'm, and I'm hearing a lot of stories about the ethics of avocados and and how they're pollinated and it's it's got me really concerned so i just thought look i love your avocados it's something that i buy here locally just wondering if you you know pay for for bees to pollinate your your crops there 
and uh, and Marcus turned around and said, "Oh no, we you know we've got a really established farm of avocado orchards, and we've also got uh, macadamias and some citrus as well, and we're lucky that we get uh, natural pollinators for when we need them for. Uh, if anything, some beekeepers come to our farm." to take advantage of our nectar that happens from time to time but we're not dependent on any other services to for pollination so that was good so so hang on but if they have other beekeepers coming to their farm they're essentially pollinating their crop they are so this is the thing this is what he mumbled to me yeah but um he did assure me uh that (laughs) you know he's not dependent on on renting beekeepers or right. getting beekeepers in. Not dependent, but maybe does, you know, like if it works in the favour of the beekeeper coming and... Yeah. Yeah. And even so, then, I believe uh, the keepers is, the beekeepers is talking about are local. Uh, yeah. They're not the migratory ones yeah. that are coming in and truckloads. So his answer was somewhat clear, yeah. you know, but I'm not going to sit there and question this guy. Yeah. Um, but it gave me enough confidence to say that, hey, you know, he's told me that, you know, he's not hiring that out uh, for pollination services. So it, it just gave me a little bit more confidence in supporting his specific avocados. Yeah. So, yeah, that's an example. Yeah. Um, but it was just a short phone call and uh, it didn't take long. In the next example, the next option, I made an, uh, I reached out again, but the next option from uh, your local grocer is going to be your supermarket. But at this level... We're in Australia, so at this level, it's about national. Like, okay, the first thing we look for when we're looking at avocados in Woolworths or Coles is, um, is this from Australia? <laughs> this is avocado yeah. come within the country. Uh, and then from there, we do some further digging. I caught up massive, you know, this was a $1, it was on sale for $1 avocados, all right? So that's alarm bells in it, you know, already. Call, call up these guys, it's a receptionist. So that's the okay, huge difference. So in the in the, in the natural grocer, uh, I, I'm pretty sure I was talking to the farmer. Yeah. He picked up the phone on a mobile number. Yeah. Now I'm on a landline mm. to receptionist mm. who's just like thinking about who like, who do I process this request to? Okay. Yeah. So different ball game. There's a different scale here. So I had to email. She suggested I email through and she'll forward on to uh, a manager. Asked the question in email. Manager got back to me that same day, which was awesome. I didn't expect an answer so quickly. Confirmed that they do rent bees yeah. for pollination. Um, and actually, they're looking at breeding their own bees. Right. Whatever that means. Right. Well, having their own hives so they don't have to pay other people. No, yes. Yeah. So, having their own hives, mm. you know, employing their own beekeepers, but then will they be making honey and beeswax off the back of that. You know what I mean? There's Probably. like, yeah. So that is something else going on. Right. But for the time being, they definitely hire, um, bee pollination services. They rent yeah. that out. So, um, so that's it. I crossed that one off our list for avocados. Yeah. Um, so you got the dollar avocado and how much did we pay for the one from the natural grocer? Well, it was actually the cheapest I've ever seen them. A dollar 55. A dollar 55. They're normally $4.50 okay. to $6 each. Okay. So, so all right. So you're there listening. There must be some boom in, even though we're in the middle of winter here, but there must yeah. be some In Queensland, boom. what's yeah. going on. Okay. So there you go. That's a really good case. And look, the ones which are in the supermarket for a dollar are not normally a dollar as well. No. They're normally $2.50. Minimum, yeah, $2 is the cheapest I've seen them. Yeah, right. 
but it gets up to about three dollars in a supermarket yeah. Australian. Yeah. And uh, so that they're both on sale. Yeah. So that's what we compared, but now we know which ones we're going to support moving forward. Yeah. And on the topic you mentioned earlier of importing, I think Australia only imports avocados from New Zealand predominantly. Yes. And that when I see that on the supermarket shelves, I just don't buy avocados. Yeah, and that would be the fifth option. Yeah. The fifth option would be um, buying imported crops, yeah. um, which you know you want to try and avoid as best that you can unless you're incredibly desperate for a particular food in your area. But again, you, you understand the levels of impact at each decision. So just to recap... Best option is backyard, your own backyard, neighbor's backyard, friends or family's backyard. Next best option is your farmer's markets with some questioning. Third best option is your natural grocer with some questioning. And then your fourth option is going to be your um, large scale farms at the supermarkets. And then your fifth option is going to be imported, right? But in terms of the questions, you just want to know, are they renting bees for pollination? Do they have different types of crops? Did I have diversity? You know, those are some yeah, type yeah. of things you can be asking. And uh, and then, you know, be sure to share that with people, you know, friends and family or uh, people who care about that type of stuff. So they can mm. make those informed decisions as well. Um, obviously, that could be trade-off a cost, but it's, it's something to keep in mind nevertheless. Yeah, cool. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Is there anything else you wanted to add? No, no, I think I think that's it. Uh, I... Uh, I'm sure that's given people a lot of food for thought. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, there's still so many questions. Yeah. There's still so many questions about the ethics of all of this stuff. And I, again, I just want to reiterate that particularly beekeepers, I think the intent is there. Everyone's trying to do the right thing. And, um, and I think that's, that's really important to acknowledge. Uh, oh, and, and then for vegans as well, who, who, who may be blindly just supporting crops you know, I think it's important for us to question things a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a pain, you know. Try and do your best. Try and you do know? your best. I yeah. mean, we've done this for skincare, personal care, cleaning products, fashion. It's hard. Investments. It's like everywhere is mm. is is an impact. But it's like voting um, with your dollar. Like trying to make the best decision possible. But I think there's also this practical part that we've also got to. I guess acknowledge that it's just not possible. That's it. You know, all That's the it. time when you have the choice, sure. Yes. But if you don't have the choice, try and make the best decision possible with yes. what you've got. That's it. And and look, and we're talking at an individual level, but my hope is that we can get really creative with how we design uh, crop farming in the future. Yeah. You know, in a really sustainable way with that includes biodiversity. And it includes least exploitation. I'm sure it's happening and I'm sure it's only going to pick up momentum. Um, but it starts with all of us making those phone calls, those emails mm. and signaling to the market that, hey, you we know, care. we care. Yeah, that's it. And and we want, we want better solutions. Um, but that's it. Hope you've enjoyed these conversations. Thank you for tuning in, guys. And if you've got any questions, you can reach out to us. We've got all of our contact information in the description of the podcast. Um, app that you're using there and we'll link to all of the resources over at the show notes which you can find at theminimalistvegan.com slash 063 thank you guys and until next time have a great day bye guys bye bye